0: We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Levovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. There's a halal slaughterhouse across the street from the studio, and the owner asked me, was like, what are you doing with this car? And I was like, well, I'm not driving it. It doesn't move. And he was like, well... I'll take it, uh, like, how much do you want for it? And I was like, I will give it to you. And from then on, like, I very rarely pay for fresh lamb.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today, I have a really fun conversation with Jonathan Kung, A Detroit based chef and TikTok creator that me and many hundreds of thousands of followers have become absolutely enchanted by over the past couple of years. I wanted to reach out to Jonathan to talk a little bit about TikTok, but talk more about his history and Chinese home cooking in particular, and how living and working in one of America's greatest food cities, Detroit, has really crystallized his point of view as a chef. We talk about the bounty of Michigan agriculture. Which is sort of a secret weapon for all the chefs working there. We also talk about the ownership of kimchi and how Jonathan wrote a recipe he calls a solidarity dish that merges kimchi chige and mapo tofu. What you may be asking? It's such a great story, Jonathan tells. Please get to know this rising star in food. Jonathan Kung, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to get, catch up with you. I want to get a little bit of your background. You know, I I, I came to know you uh, from TikTok. You've got such a career outside of TikTok, but... You know, when you launched that account, what was the expectation? I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Uh,
0: really, there was there was no expectation when I had started on TikTok, really. Uh, I was on TikTok probably close to a year before um, I had even made my first post. And even then, it was just like, you know, waking up a little bit early in the morning and then deciding, oh, let's flip through this thing for like 10 minutes or whatnot. It wasn't really something that I had really considered myself on, um, up until the pandemic. And then there had been, I had been seeing more and more people using it. And I felt like, you know, while we were all in quarantine, I needed to do something to contribute. And as like a chef who was literally like locked in, locked in his studio, I felt like, well, at least I could maybe like pass on a skill or something and that's how I started with the videos um it started off with just me just very sheepishly and terrified of like being in front of a camera but still like doing a little bit of cooking in front of there um and then over time a following started to develop and uh yeah it just kind of grew into this own machine and now this is
1: what I do (laughs) Yeah, it's what you do, but you do so much more. I want to get into what your pop-ups in, in Detroit and, and your, your cooking career. But first, back to TikTok a little bit. You know, why is TikTok so great for chefs and for food content? I mean, I think TikTok is great for a lot of things. You know, I, I'm a big fan of like airline TikTok. I watch like live planes taking off on TikTok. That's just that's just me. Um, that's my thing. That's my jam. But I, but like cooking, though, and food is so vibrant on TikTok. Why do you think so? I think because it kind of within the minute time span,
0: it kind of like allows cooks of all kinds to just like showcase um, almost like a preview of what is possible within a recipe. So like nobody really is trying to commit to making the whole dish while you're doing it. But they love to see the process and they love to see it compacted in the in like a very short time from start to finish. I mean, like even a full minute video compared to like a 30 or 45 second one, you'll see, you'll see a difference in how much people are willing to stick around to like watch, watch what's going on. But when you like have just the action of cooking um, from start to finish, then it becomes just a much more manageable, manageable, like Bite, pardon the pun. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's why it really took off, not to mention the fact that there's a huge, like, cultural component to everything. People are just curious to see what other people are doing um, in their kitchens all over the world.
1: I agree with you so much. I think that the way that culture kind of is spread through TikTok and, and like, if you're cooking, you know, traditional Korean or Chinese cuisine you're cooking you know you're baking um a souffle or you're baking or you're braising it doesn't matter where you're from it's extending uh, the culture of the dish to a very wide audience um i want to get a little bit of sense of your uh background as a chef um how did you get into professional cooking and do you do, are you a restaurant chef i know you do uh, pop-up uh, uh or studio concept in Detroit, but i would get into that. But what's your background a little bit? So my background, well, originally I was a self-taught cook and
0: um, pretty much going through using books and the internet and learning the way of like traditional, I guess, Chinese-American cookery. Uh, from then on, I had started doing my own pop-up in Detroit, probably around 2008 and 2009. Uh, That kind of that took off in like no small way. And that got me um, into the Detroit culinary scene where I became like good friends with a whole lot of chefs who were opening restaurants at that time. So so around that time, there were there was a lot of chefs coming in from Chicago and New York and stuff like that coming back to Michigan because most of them had homes uh, had like grown up here. Um, and they wanted to like bring their skills back to the city and open their own restaurants and they needed skilled labor. So a lot of the people that did pop-ups, um, ended up helping the chefs with opening their restaurants. And that's like a large part of what I did as well. So I started up self-taught with a little food blog and then I started cooking out of like, you know, abandoned storefronts and all sorts of random places, museums in Detroit. Um, and then that grew into like me actually working on the line uh, at a few restaurants.
1: Oh, really? So you actually did some professional restaurant cooking. Was that was that a big lear- learning curve for you to to go to into the onto the line? Um, and start luckily, I feel like the pop like
0: doing things. Um, semi-professionally in a pop-up setting kind of prepared me for that rush. Uh, We always say like at the restaurants, like a person coming out of culinary school, for example, like has no idea how fast they actually need to go. But when you're working at a pop-up, even though it was like your first couple of times, you understand what it means to just keep constant and keep it quick. Um, So I kind of went in knowing that I was more useful I guess than say like a culinary student grad in some ways um because my background was in Chinese American and Chinese uh, cookery like I I never used a western chef's knife and luckily I had friends that understood that that they let me use my like Chinese cleaver even though I was like cooking new American
1: cuisine <laughs> so kung food market studio is 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 the kind of tent that you're uh cooking under, so what's an experience like and and how can we how can we like try your food I, I mean I would like to try your food how do i do that well uh after
0: I had cooked on the line for a little while and also during i had for a number of years opened up my own i call it my studio kitchen because it's not a restaurant and it's kind of modeled after um It was modeled after two things, like the Hong Kong style private kitchen where people would just kind of like open restaurants in their homes uh, to the public, as well as like this kind of secret kitchen concept, one that I had worked in previously called Salt and Cedar in Detroit, which is actually right around the corner from where my studio was. And so it was ticketed dinners. It was and then I like would secretly open for brunch. And it's it was very unusual in Detroit because my studio was in the far- is in the Farmer's Market District, so it's one of the few places in Detroit where you got, like, reliable foot traffic anywhere. So I did have people that would, like, stumble upon this place. I didn't have any signage or anything, just an open door, and people would just wander in wondering what things were, and then the next thing that you know, you're off – the streets in this little like farmer's market district. And then you see like this massive 16 person table that is all dressed with flowers and stuff. And I'm there cooking like in this tiny kitchen space. And that's where a lot of people just would spend their Saturdays having brunch. Um, Unfortunately, we were in the middle of, I guess, quote, legitimization. Um, We were doing like a commercial build out and stuff. And then the pandemic hit. And we had to put it all on hold. And we're still like stuck in the middle of that process right now. We do have plans to eventually get it done. But because of everything that I'm doing now, I'm taking my time
1: with it. Makes sense. And, and let's go back to the, the Hong Kong, the culture of the private restaurant in homes in Hong Kong. I, I want to hear a little bit about that culture, because I think it's such a unique concept that maybe in America, we're not seeing as much, you know, there's private chefs who operate in private homes, but it's nothing that you can like invite folks into your home that's like not really that common in America.
0: Yeah, a lot of these places like operated in a legal gray area as I did in Detroit. Um, And so because rents in Hong Kong and storefronts in Hong Kong were so high, you'd have these places that like people just know about And it could be so, and they're so varied because like some of these places are large apartments, beautiful marble apartments with tasting menus, like multi-course tasting menus. On the other hand, this could just be like an apartment above a bar where all all these people do is just like make handmade dumplings all day, boil them and you go up there and eat them. So it varies. I haven't been to one since probably, well, since definitely before the pandemic, because I haven't been there since then, but it had been a few years. I I don't know if there's still a thing over there, but, you know, going to the ones that I did go to really informed like my knowledge of like whether or not this is something that worked. So not only did I just, I served a casual brunch on Saturdays, and then some weekends I would dedicate like three days in a week um, to multi-course uh,
1: ticketed menus. Very cool. I, I, I really can't wait to, to actually, to visit, uh, your restaurant because I am a proud Michigander as well. I have to shout, shout West Michigan. I grew up in Kalamazoo. My sister lives in West Bloomfield. My mom grew up in Wayne. Oh, cool. So yeah, man. So I, I want to get your take on Detroit and the restaurant scene there because like you're really tapped in and I want to just represent it because it is exciting. Absolutely an exciting place for food. Oh, it totally is. Um, I mean,
0: people. I, I think Michigan has like the second largest agricultural output of all of the United States. I have read that somewhere. Second to per California. capita, absolutely yeah, yeah. per capita. Per yes, capita, second yes. to California, of course. And so, like, we have all these resources of like great produce and um, and and meat. And I think it's it's kind of like an untapped resource right now. Uh, Certainly before COVID, there was starting to be to show like, you know, some some nicer restaurants come in and with and you'll find like people who are more adventurous with their cooking styles, especially with like during that period of new American cuisine, um, it took a really big hit. Unfortunately, with COVID and we still haven't fully recovered, as I don't think any major city has, but going out in Detroit is still a little bit of a challenge right now, um, just simply because it's, it's, it was difficult to have a restaurant here before. Uh, let alone it seems to be even more difficult right now. But once we're back on our feet, like I have no doubt that people will start doing the interesting things that they had been doing again.
1: Yeah, I have no doubt. On the spot, what's the great, Detroit's greatest export? Is it Werner's? Is it the Coney Dog? Or is it the pizza with ranch? Uh, I would, well, I wouldn't necessarily say the pizza with ranch,
0: but Detroit-style pizza by far is my favorite kind of pizza, and I don't say that just because like I have a hometown bias. I just think it is object—it is just objectively the best way to enjoy the pizza format.
1: I love that. Uh, I love those words. I, I think there's lots of debate on this podcast about pizza styles. I love that you're you're drawing a line in the sand. Um, you call yourself Detroit average. You've written that. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? Um, so <laughs> Detroit average. When I first moved here.
0: Into the city was 2007 and it was the absolute height of the recession. And it felt like within like the downtown space, which hadn't even seen like this was before the big mortgage mortgage company, Quicken, moved in with all of their employees from the suburbs. Um, So any interest in Detroit was like very you know, cynical and bleak, but the people that had been living there, all of them just seemed so much more informed and resourceful than, than like people that I had seen in any other city in my life, because there was such a lack of resources. Like there wouldn't, like you couldn't get a plumber or a carpenter or an electrician to travel down to Detroit at those times. But then again, people were still buying homes and fixing them up themselves. So like after living here for a while, I would just thought it was like, oh, it's common knowledge that you should know how to like do light plumbing and electrical and carpentry. Um, And then going into other cities, I realized like, oh, this is not common knowledge. And the people who were here had such an intense love for the city that they were really involved, informed with, in things like architecture and design. So I was just like, I found the people he- and the artists here are immensely, like, are so underappreciated. Um, it's not an, like the one thing that Michigan does not do well is appreciate the creative power that comes out of this city or this state. We kind of have to make it big somewhere else. Um, or get recognition somewhere else before anyone here will give us the time of day, which is unfortunate. But you know, that's that's kind of like how I think that's like a Midwest thing.
1: It's a Midwestern thing too. I, I think you're right, and and it's unfortunate that Michigan Michiganders. You know, can't stand on their own and have to to leave to to bring you know bring the the pride of Michigan back. but I want to tap into what you said about the farms because you know we had g hey ha Kim on the podcast in a previous episode, and she talked about the same thing. She's at Miss Kim in Ann Arbor. I mean, are you with your cooking? Are you? Are you going out to farms? What are some of the products that you're seeing in Michigan?
0: So I haven't been, because I haven't been like cooking in that general, in, in the space very much, I haven't been in a contact with a lot of my farmers, unfortunately. But, you know, I was always a big fan of Maple Creek Farms in Yale, as well as Mellow Farms. These are places where I would get heritage Berkshire pork or like biodynamic organic produce that were super like extremely Extremely seasonal and extremely delicate. Um, some of the best tomatoes are grown like two blocks away from me within the city and rising pheasant farms. And um, urban farming was just it does so well as well, like coriander farm and kitchen. I used to depend on them a lot for like edible flowers as well as like doing huge flower arrangements from another, again, another farm that's only two blocks away from me. Like I would bike to these places to get my produce. I love that.
1: I love the urban farming, the vertical farming that's happening in cities like Detroit. It's cool that you're calling these out. I mean, are you, are you going up North at all? Are you, are you heading to farms up there? So I, I had been to a uh, North
0: Point, Michigan once, and it was on a trip to kind of like an exploratory trip up there. Unfortunately, I hadn't, I haven't had the opportunity to be back in a really long time, because I don't, I don't have a car. Um, and I haven't had one in probably like six years. Uh, I just gave mine up. I literally like gave my car to like it my, this little beat up Volkswagen golf that just wasn't running anymore. Um, I traded it for lamb for, uh, with my, <laughs> with my butcher across the street. <laughs> There's a halal slaughterhouse across the street from the studio. And, the owner asked me, he "Was like, what are you doing with this car?" And I was like, "Well, I'm not driving it. It doesn't move." And he was like, "Well, I'll take it. I like look, how much do you want for it?" And I was like, "I will give it to you." And from then on, like, I very rarely pay for fresh lamb.
1: <laughs> That's beautiful. What a barter! I love it. It's, right. it's a it's a modern uh, like village there. It's like the feudal system. Yeah. Oh, oh, totally. Uh, Eastern market
0: um, where I am. It is. Yeah. I think it is the largest or oldest. Con, uh, continuous, continuously running farmer's market district in the country. Um, and we it's a it's like a village within the city, even though our zip code is obviously downtown Detroit. We all know what is going on with the businesses. We all know each other. We all support each other. And it's just a great little community to be a part of.
1: It really is. It's a beautiful place to visit. Highly recommend it. I want to talk about some of your cooking and, and really the whimsical and really intelligent cooking you're doing on TikTok. I can't say that about all TikTok, but yours is in particularly just so grounded in, in not just fun, but like there's a real history and there's, like real, there's real meat there. And, and one dish that I wanted to ask you about is you call it the solidarity dish, and it's the merging of mapo tofu and kimchi Chige. I love this dish, and what was the backstory for that? I love that dish so my friend my friend Kim had mentioned to me
0: about this uh this online discourse that had been going on between Korean and Chinese netizens then they had been fighting over like the ownership of kimchi and like to kind of summarize that the that whole basis of the story, the Chinese had put like the patent or 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 I had registered the process of a similar pickled Chinese vegetable and on that like process they had specifically also written like but not like this has nothing to do with kimchi we don't take the ownership of kimchi uh that note was omitted in an article and then the article itself had said like China claims kimchi as like a national thing and that was put on top of other cultural uh the, on top of other previous cultural drama between China and Korea, and so, you know, people, you know, you there are nationalists on both sides, and they are very active on the internet. Doesn't even matter what country you're from. So, this whole back and forth had started, and you know, my friend had mentioned it to me, and I looked into it, and I was like, well, this is this is this is very stupid. Like this
1: obviously. <laughs>
0: obviously kimchi is is Korean and it should be no one else's but but Korean and so like I was so I was going through and also my friend Eric Kim had just released his book Korean American and I happened to have been flipping through it and I saw this kimchi jjigae recipe and I thought I was like well what what would what would a collaboration look like uh, between something that was very Korean and very Chinese and honestly like mapo tofu kimchi jjigae i came up with it just because it was a really fun thing to say yeah it is beautiful <laughs> it's just, beautiful re- it just like right rolls there. off the tongue and just like and so like you know it's something that i know that people from both cultures would enjoy because it is both spicy it's both bright and vibrant um and like i know that koreans also use ha- used a lot of tofu in their soup so i was like well why don't we why don't we like combine the two and so i took the principles of like making mapo tofu using like the the yakai the pish, pickled vegetables and the chili oil and stuff um and just like inserted that into like eric kim's recipe and it produced something that was absolutely delicious uh and yeah, I, and then that video kind of just took off on both TikTok and YouTube.
1: <laughs> yeah, real solidarity dish. I love that explanation. And it gets a sense of how you think about food with uh, obviously very internet focused and you use the word netizens, which is great. And then you're just clearly tying it into culture and the real zeitgeist. So that's kind of just setting up like your cookbook, which will be out in a, in a little while, probably a year or so, I'm not sure, whenever. I'm, I'm not even gonna talk about dates, but let's talk about the tone of your cookbook that you're going to be working on the next while. Are you thinking about these things? These like kind of the way that food and the internet flow together, these conversations, or is it totally something different? I'm, I'm just making a leap here. So absolutely.
0: It. I mean, like, you know, in, in all stages of the book, you know, the book is constantly growing and evolving as we go. Uh, it still has very rooted in the idea of Chinese uh, as like uh diasporic Chinese cuisine and taking inspiration from traditional Chinese dishes as from countries that are outside of China, because these, you know, communities have been there for so long that they have established their own iconic dishes, whether it be Canada, like um, ginger, ginger beef, or, you know, um, in Detroit itself, like, like uh, almond boneless chicken, chicken. South Africa, I think, of like salt and salt and pepper mushrooms. Uh, in India, you have a uh, Manchurian cuisine, which is absolutely fascinating in its history. Whereas, like this restaurant at this private uh, Indian country club had like a Chinese chef and just decided to like mix the two, make Chinese food as it as it pertains to like Indian and South Asian tastes. Uh, and from out of that came a uh, paneer Szechuan, which is like a stir fried. Sichuan chili oil paneer dish that is just so brilliant. Banging, outstanding, what a dish. So brilliant. So I was using those. So like I took inspiration from those traditional cuisines and because like Chinese cuisine fell off for a period, like take Chinese American cuisine, for example, because of whatever socioeconomic stigma was attached to to that cuisine, um, there hasn't been much play with it the same way that the rest of american cuisines have been so you take like you know we never got to see that renaissance in the 2000s with the opening of gastro pubs and whatnot where you saw like a lot of new american cuisine pop up and the a lot of my own contributions to the book that aren't the tra- those traditional recipes are kind of like playing with the idea of like well what if we did get to participate in that uh just and what that means and what new American food really all that it is, is just like American cuisine that is just taking part in the diversity, greater diversity of the country itself. Um, so you saw gastropubs gastropub starting to serve pork belly and put taco, put things in tacos and whatnot, just really fun interpretations of the internationality of the country. And so that is how it, that that informed my approach to how I made these recipes, like these recipes that are like Chinese American, but the only reason why they're American is because they take part in the diversity of America.
1: Yeah. Wow. It's going to be such a cool book. And and once we actually look at the recipes and start talking about it, that we'll have you on for another full hour. Lucas Sin and I had the same conversations about last fall about the the diaspora in America and, and how the Chinese American experience um, is informed by gastropubs, and I think it's cool that you're you're pointing out to this evolution of Chinese American cuisine outside of I think some of our listeners still may think it's only the 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 the, the, the takeout you know variety in America, but there's quite a, a long and wide birth of restaurants in America that serve Chinese food. So. I wanted to talk about some of your favorite cookbooks. I think that you're you're plugged into media so well. Do you have any favorite uh, recent cookbooks that you want to want to shout out? Uh, yeah, for
0: sure. Um, admittedly, I was not a large consumer of food content before I became somebody who lived and worked in food content. but I have had the pleasure of getting a whole bunch of cookbooks and making friends with a lot of cookbook authors who, you know, will definitely who I could like cry on the phone with at any time that I needed to. But I recently, I was reading through Eric Kim's cookbook, Korean American, Mikotina, uh, I think that's how I, that's how you pronounce it. I'm not sure by Rick Martinez. And um, most recently I just got the cook that you want to be uh, by Andy Bergani. And that one is just, it's so, it's so <laughs> stylish. I absolutely i cannot wait to to like pour through that but those three cookbooks are the ones that i are that i'm absolutely like very excited to actually
1: cook out of amazing well we've had rick eric and andy on the taste podcast so i'll make sure to link to all those episodes and now we have you on here and i i just love uh, your point of view and and i i can't wait to watch uh watch you grow and and welcome to the food media party jonathan <laughs> thank you so much it's <laughs> good to be here it's so funny that you said that. You, I mean, it's it's like we think about like you've been here forever because you're on TikTok and you're you're very well you're established. But no, you you you're new. Like food media is new to you. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I am absolutely totally new. I'm I think I'm probably like in year 3 of this entire career. It's like I st- I posted my first video on TikTok May of the pandemic, May of quarantine. I don't even know what year it is
1: because I haven't known. I haven't really. <laughs> so that's known two, year years yeah, okay, so two, two years. Yeah, officially two years ago. Two years ago. <laughs> two years ago. <laughs> but do you still think of yourself as a restaurant chef or a, or a, a pop up chef more than a creator, or are you kind of thinking both now? I mean, I mean, I think I think you're you're not a restaurant chef
0: unless like you're actually in a restaurant no nobody can take the title of chef away from you once you once you i once you've earned it and you know to be a chef it has nothing to do with culinary school or how much you cook but like your your position as a leader in your restaurant like that's what makes a chef it's a very you know plain title to have it means chief um so i given that it's been a couple of years since I've actually had a crew and a space that I've cooked out of, like, you know, I don't really consider myself that anymore. But, you know, at the minute that my place opens or that minute that I have a space again, then yeah, yeah, I can, I'll very comfortably put that apron back on.
1: All right. I I can't wait for that time. We ask all guests in the Taste Podcast, if there was a cookbook project that you could work on, Without the the burden of of a of a of a deadline or a, a budget, I know you're in the middle of a cookbook, but thinking beyond it, what would that dream cookbook project be? Oh, it would be a graphic novel,
0: 100. percent I would love to do a cookbook-style graphic novel somewhere along the lines, somewhere in between Pop Sizzle Wow. It, that one's like a cookbook comic book that was like a re- that dealt with recipes, and then um, Get Jiro. By Anthony oh, Bourdain, yeah. like somewhere in between there, something with a plot but also recipes. Like I would love to do something like that.
1: Oh, I w- are you a, are you a manga fan? Are you? Fan I yeah, comics absolutely or? am. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So, in terms of uh, the protagonist in this in this book, is it you? Is it? Do you have a protagonist in mind? Uh, somebody else? I would never want to write about myself like that. <laughs> I would have to ask <laughs> <cop> somebody. <laughs> oh. Uh. I think this is going to happen, Jonathan. Jonathan Kung, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.